Genesis chapter 28, uh, verses uh, 10 to 22. Genesis 28, verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth. And the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. And you shall spread abroad the east and the west and the north and the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I promised to you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I, that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I will come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. And let's pray again together. Our Lord and our God, as we approach this sacred text, we are standing on holy ground. Lord, as we see what happens when your life intersects with the life of an unbeliever, begins to transform and how you in your grace, Lord, search out sinners, those whom you have set apart for your salvation, and how you work that salvation in your lives and promise them glorious promises. Lord, I pray that as we consider the life of Joseph and what you did in him and for him. Lord, that you'd help us to see ourselves before you and that you'd help us to see where we stand before you. Lord, that we would see for, for those of us who are, are unbelievers, that you would help us to see that, help them to see that they stand here under your just and holy condemnation. But for those who are truly born again, I pray that you would help each one of us, Lord, to see your grace and your mercy, and that you would call all of us, everyone here, to the great salvation that we have been given in Jesus Christ. Amen. 
He was on the road leaving Israel for Gentile territory. He misguidedly sought spiritual ends through extremely unspiritual and sinful methods. He had failed to consider who God was and what he was like when he was stopped dead in his tracks by an uninvited heavenly visitor. Saul of Tarsus was on his way to Damascus when he had an encounter with Jesus Christ. He still went to Damascus, but he was on an entirely different road and had an entirely different mission. He was now on the road to the promised land, and his mission was now to help build up the church that he had been trying to destroy. In our passage this morning, Jacob was a lot like Saul of Tarsus. He was leaving the promised land for Padanaram. No, not for the same sort of nefarious purposes as Saul of Tarsus. Saul had murder in his heart, but Jacob fled murder in the heart of his brother Esau. Jacob was running scared when he, like Saul, had an encounter with an uninvited heavenly visitor. Jacob would still head to Padanaram, but with an entirely different purpose, to build up the people of God. His road would lead back to the earthly promised land, but far more important, importantly, he was now on the road to the heavenly promised land. Like Saul of Tarsus, who became Paul the Apostle, Jacob too will receive a new name, though not quite yet. Our passage this morning is also the story of an encounter with God and the transformation that that brings. As we pick up the narrative in Genesis 28.10, Jacob is not a young man. He's already over 40. He was over 40 when he deceived his father, but, but what we have seen of Jacob's life so far, God seems to be silent. Unlike the repeated interactions between the Lord and his father Isaac and his grandfather Abraham, in Jacob's life, the Lord's silence is deafening. Though the Lord had been active in Jacob's life through prophecy and through providence, there is no direct communication. It's a two-way street. Jacob is silent about the Lord too. There's no hint of prayer. There's no hint of worship. And no mention even of the name of the Lord apart from his blasphemous lie when he deceived his father. Jacob's behavior is quite contrary to the Lord and his will. But that is about to change. The Lord is about to break into Jacob's life in a powerful way. And so we get to see Jacob transformed from wicked to worshiper before our very eyes. Now this is unique. We haven't seen this sort of thing happening but yet. So, but to be fair, we, we really don't know much about, about Abraham prior to his being called, apart from the fact that Abraham lived in a pagan land and that he didn't leave right away. When, but, but we've seen Jacob in his life again and again pursuing sin and self. But God is about to change Jacob's direction. And apart from where this story breaks off to follow the life of Joseph, Jacob's son, we're going to follow Jacob for the rest of Genesis. 
but the roads are going to intersect again as we go to the end of the book of Genesis. Jacob is headed to Padanaram, running from his brother. And he's about to run into the Lord. Jacob is seeking a wife, but the Lord is seeking him. The Lord is about to personally reaffirm his gracious blessing upon Jacob. He's about to promise Jacob his very presence. This would have a profound impact on the patriarch. It would begin his road to worship and would give him hope in the midst of the trials that awaited. God's grace is on Jacob. The Lord promises to be with Jacob wherever he goes, and Jacob will learn to trust the Lord's promise for provision, for protection, and for his presence. God, by his grace, promises to be with his people. This promise of the Lord's presence was a source of comfort for Jacob. The promise of his presence was a source of comfort for Israel. The promise of his presence is a source of comfort for us all. So this morning we're going to see Jacob's dream in verses 10 to 15. Then we're going to see how Jacob names Bethel in verses 16 to 19. And then Jacob's vow in verses 20 to 22. So first of all, 10 to 15, Jacob's dream. Again, Jacob is on the run. After deceiving his father Isaac to swindle his brother Esau out of the blessing, Esau gets angry and plans to murder Jacob. But thankfully, their mother, Rebekah, had heard about this. She found out about it. And so she warns Jacob to flee to Badanaram, to a place that is also known as Haran, to her brother Laban. Rebekah then convinced Isaac to send Jacob there for the stated reason of finding a wife. But finding a wife is not the prime motivation. Jacob, again, is running for his life. It's ironic, isn't it, that that Jacob is here seen to be fleeing the land that had been promised to him in the stolen blessing. His whole plan seems at this point to have backfired. The journey from Beersheba to Haran was about 800 kilometers through inhospitable, dangerous roads. It would take about a month to make the journey. But only a few days into the journey, Jacob came to a certain place and stopped to spend the night. They took one of the stones of the place and set it under his head as a pillow. I could think of other things that I'd use instead of a stone for a pillow, but that's what he did. The stone was, was nothing special in his mind. This place was nothing special in his mind. He just happened upon the place, just happened upon the stone. Man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps, Proverbs 16:9. This night would mirror another experience, that of his, father, of his grandfather, Abraham, many years earlier. Verse 13, And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. This is the first of such dreams in Genesis. Dreams are going to figure prominently in the rest of Genesis. Genesis, as the story continues, especially in the life of Joseph. In Jacob's dream, he, he sees a, a, a ladder or, or a stairway that reaches up to heaven from earth. And on it, angels were ascending. They were going up and down on this staircase. 
The angels, or, or messengers, as, as the word is, is sometimes translated, were, were setting out on their heavenly missions. Now, what precisely they were doing, we don't know. But reaching from the, la the fact that the stairway reached from earth to heaven meant that the stairway provided access to God. This was indeed the case, for the Lord himself stood at the top of the stairway. Now, this could also be translated, translated that the Lord stood, stood beside the stairway. And both fit the, the context, for, for indeed the stairway introduces the theme of this passage that God is with his people. And now for the first time, the Lord speaks to Jacob. What would you expect the Lord to say to Jacob? You're probably expecting a sharp rebuke. You didn't trust me. You deceived your father. You alienated your brother. You blasphemed my name. No, the Lord says none of those things. He declares, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The Lord's self-revelation is, is seen repeatedly when he establishes a covenant with his people. It's in the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 15:7, and the Mosaic covenant in Exodus 21. By identifying himself as the God of Jacob's grandfather Abraham and of his father Isaac, God is showing that, that he is passing down the covenant blessing. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob is another link in the chain, and he's going to receive the same blessing. This is grace. This is God's unmerited favor upon Jacob. The blessing here comes in three parts. The promise of land, the promise of offspring, and the promise of presence. These are, again, are repetitions of the Lord, Lord's promises to Abraham and to Isaac. They're the same promises. First, the promise of land. God promises in verse 13 to give Jacob and his offspring the land on which he lied. The promise of land is, is very powerful given the fact that, that Jacob is at this very moment fleeing the promised land. He had been given the blessing instead of Esau, but he was leaving. Esau, on the other hand, wasn't. Esau was staying. So begin to, to wonder, is, this really, is, is Jacob really the one who's going to get the blessings after all? Esau is still there. Is he the one that's going to get the blessing? Jacob was leaving and he's going to be gone for a long time, 20 years in fact. But he will, in fact, receive the land. This promise is going to be partially fulfilled in Jacob's lifetime, but its, it's, it's earthly fulfillment is about to be realized as the, as the people, people of Israel receive this, this scripture through Moses. First we, see, we do see Jacob coming back to this land, but then we see under Moses, the people being led back into the land after 400 years in Egypt and 40 years wandering in the wilderness. But the final fulfillment of this promise, the, 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 the spiritual fulfillment of this promise is yet to, come for the, yet to come for the patriarchs and for all the people of God who seek a better country, a heavenly one, Hebrews 11:16. So this this earthly promise of the land is, is typological. It actually is a symbol that points to something greater. Something that, that God is going to do in, in giving his people 
the, our heavenly promised land. For, for, for us as believers, this is the new heavens and the new earth after the return of Christ. The second promise that the Lord gives to Jacob is the promise of offspring. And this is also especially powerful given the fact that Jacob isn't even married yet. Jacob's not even married, and in here, God is promising him offspring. So, so if he connects the dots in his mind, he's okay, I'm, I'm going to get a wife, and I'm, and I'm going to get children. Remember, finding a wife is the, the other, the, the second reason for, for his journey to Haran. As was promised to Abraham, Jacob's offspring, we're told, will be like the dust of the earth. They will spread west and east and north and south. By the time Jacob comes back to the promised land, we're gonna, he's going to have come a long way towards seeing that promise fulfilled. He's going to come back with two wives, 12 sons, and a daughter. But the promise doesn't stop with, with Jacob. And you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. We've heard those exact words given to Abraham in Genesis 12.3. This is the same promise. This points ahead, of course, to a particular descendant of Jacob. Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman who will crush the serpent's head, Genesis 3.15. And it's because of Jesus Christ that the third promise is the most powerful in Jacob's life. The lives of, of every elect Israelite and the life of every true believer. It's the promise of God's presence. Verse 15, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Again, it's the, the repetition of the, the promise of inheriting the land, but it's how this is going to take place that is the glory of this promise. The Lord's saying, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to be with you for your whole life. Wherever you go, I am going to be there. Now, this does not mean that, that the Lord is going to leave Jacob after the promise is fulfilled, but, but that the Lord is guaranteeing that the promise is going to be fulfilled. And we'll see as we track through Genesis that the Lord indeed fulfills that promise. He does not leave Jacob for his entire life. The Lord is going to make the promise to Jacob again in Genesis 46.4. When Jacob is elderly and agrees to go down to Egypt during the famine, the Lord says, I myself will go with you to Egypt and also bring you up again. So to hear these promises, I am with you. I will keep you. I will bring you back. I will not leave you. Jacob, like his father and his grandfather before him, is the recipient of the gracious promises of the Lord. Here's Sidney Gradanus. God's promises are pure grace. Jacob has messed up his life with his ambition, callousness, deceit, lying, and using the Lord's name to cover his deceit. Jacob deserves God's curse, but instead God comes to him with wonderful promises. Now think about how good this promise would have sounded to, the, to those in Israel. Remember that the original recipients of this, of this, of this book were the, the, the children of Israel as they had, they had left Egypt after their captivity. They had wandered in the wilderness for 40 years when Moses gave this to them. 
They're about to face mortal enemies as they return to the promised land, and God promises to be with them, to protect them. Imagine them reading this as they're about to face these Canaanites. Uh, imagine them reading this later in the promised land as, they, as they'd taken the promised land and now invaders came into the promised land, invading armies like the Moabites, the Philistines, the Babylonians, and even the descendants of Esau, the Edomites. Or later again, imagine them reading this in captivity in Babylon. God will be with you wherever you go. Now in verses 16 to 19, Jacob names Bethel. Verse 16, Jacob wakes from his sleep and says, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. Now from a, a human perspective, again, he, he just happened on this place. But it was God's providence that led him there. Jacob wasn't seeking the Lord, but the Lord was seeking him. Jacob was oblivious of the presence of the Lord throughout his life, even though the Lord had been there all along, and now the Lord broke in. And even as Jacob is being made aware of the Lord's promise that the Lord was for him, Jacob is understandably afraid. This is the, the holy fear of the Lord. This is reverent awe. Verse 17, Jacob was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. How awesome is this place! Jacob had, had, had stumbled into this, this awesome place. But, but as an aside, the, the flippant use of the word awesome bothers me. It bothers me when, when I do it too. The, the word awesome is often used to describe things that are definitely not awesome. On a powder day, the snow is awesome. Or this steak is awesome. Now, as enjoyable as powder days and steak are, two of my favorite things, those things are definitely not awesome. This is a word that we should, use, we should reserve for what is truly awesome. For, for God and for the, the things of God, He is awesome. Jacob says, this is the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Again, Jacob has stumbled upon a special place. And so he turns his stone pillow into a stone pillar. He pours oil on it. Now, Jacob was not bowing before this stone like the idolatrous Canaanite pillars that were to be torn down. This stone, this pillar is set up to commemorate his meeting with the Lord. He was setting up it up as a monument, as a reminder of what had happened here. And he consecrates the stone by pouring oil on it. This is a, a practice that was common in Leviticus for holy people and places and things. And later in the book of Joshua, you'll see how repeatedly Piles of stones are set up as reminders. As reminders. So now, having set up the pillar, Jacob gives the place a name. It's been called Luz, but Jacob calls it Bethel, which means house of God. As the landowner, Jacob has the right to name it. Bethel is about 15 kilometers north of Jerusalem, about 85 kilometers north of Beersheba. 
But this isn't the first time that we've encountered Bethel in Genesis. This isn't the, the, the first time that worship has taken place at Bethel either. Remember, from back in Genesis 12, Abraham built an altar in this region when he had entered the promised land over a hundred years prior. Abraham was heading in, and Jacob was heading out. The Lord was in this place, but Jacob did not know it. The Lord is in this place. Do you know it? Do you know it? When you come to church on Sunday morning to gather together and worship God with the saints, something special is taking place. Something very special. Do you come to church on Sunday morning prepared to meet with God? Do you come in having prepared your heart with prayer, having repented of and, and confessed to the Lord and any person you have wronged, any known sin? having tried to do something as simple as getting a good night's sleep before coming to church on Sunday morning. Now we understand that the Lord is present not just here, but there is something special when the saints gather together on the first day of the week. But we understand that, that every day is worship. That, that, that wherever we go, we go in the presence of God and we are standing on holy ground. The Lord is here. Do you know it? He is present when you wake up. He's present when you have breakfast with your family. He's present when you go to work or school or, or when you work around the house. He's present when you watch TV or, or sit at your computer. What would you do differently if your boss or your teacher or your pastor was there present with you? How much more? when you realize that you dwell before the gaze of the omniscient, thrice holy God. He sees you, not just your actions, but also the attitudes of your heart. May God cultivate in us an understanding that we dwell in the presence of God. May it help us to have a daily attitude of, of worship and we understand that we are, are in communion with him. May Psalm 139 expose your heart and the power of the Holy Spirit. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways, even before a word is on my tongue. Behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for, me, wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall your hand lead me. If, if I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light be about me as night, even the darkness is not too dark for you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. We dwell in the presence of the holy God. But unlike Samson in Judges 16.20, who didn't know that the Lord had left him, 
For Jacob, the Lord was here and he didn't know it. Victor Hamilton warns that ignorance of or presumption on the presence of God is inexcusable. And I pray that I would be increasingly aware of the fact that I dwell in the presence of God, that you would be increasingly aware of the fact that you dwell in the presence of God, that the Lord is everywhere. And this is a comfort to the believer, but it is a terror to the unbeliever. Finally, verses 20 to 22, we see Jacob's vow. Jacob makes a vow to the Lord saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I will go, that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I will come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Now you can understand Jacob's perceived need. He's headed out into the wilderness beyond the promised land, beyond everything that he knows, away from his family, away from their protection. He's only just a few days into a journey that is going to take him over a month. He has no idea that, that he's going to be gone for 20 years. He's going to need food. He's going to need clothing. But even more importantly than that, he's going to need protection. Not only was the open road dangerous from wild animals and from thieves, but, but more than that, remember why he's leaving. His brother wants to kill him. This is a very real and present need in Jacob's life. He longs already to return to his father's house in peace. And Jacob promises to serve God if God provides for him, protects him, and is present with him. Now some commentators, as, as they look at this, and maybe you've looked at it this way yourself, that, that Jacob is saying here, if you do this for me, I will worship you. I wonder, do you do that? Do you, do you try to negotiate or barter a deal with God? Do, do you promise to worship God if God serves you? We need to realize that that, 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 is, that is a common understanding of, of a misunderstanding, an unbiblical understanding of who God is and, and how he operates. We, we don't exist to, or God does not exist to, to serve us. We exist to serve him. And we've seen a lot of negative behavior from Jacob, but I don't think that's what's happening here. Similar wording is, is seen in Numbers 21 when the, the king of Arad um, attacks the children of Israel and they ask the, the children of Israel ask the Lord to give their enemies into their hand. Uh, uh, Numbers 21.2 And Israel vowed a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed give this people into my hand, then I will devote their cities to destruction. And the Lord answered them and gave them victory and then they indeed did what they had vowed to the Lord and destroyed their cities. In that case, and I believe here with Jacob, that I believe that, that Jacob is making a vow based on the Lord's promises, based on what the Lord has promised. This vow meant that, that he believed the Lord and then bound himself to worship. It's not, he's not saying here that if, if you provide for me and protect me and are present with me, I'll worship you, but instead it's saying, since You've promised to provide for me. Since you've promised to protect me, since you are present with me, I will worship you. And the content then of 
Joseph's vow includes three elements. The Lord shall be my God. The stone which I have set up for a pillar, pillar shall be God's house. And all that you give me, of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. This first vow is, is Jacob's promise to dedicate his life to the Lord. God had promised Abraham to be his God in Genesis 17.8. He had promised the same to the children of Israel in Exodus 6.7 and 29.45. And the promise is also for all those who are in the new covenant. Jeremiah 31.33 says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. And here we see a reciprocal vow that is made to God by the people that are now his. I made a similar vow to the Lord in the hospital 27 years ago. Whatever is left of this wreck of a life is yours. Please forgive me. I didn't, I didn't know enough religion to, to, to know the sinner's prayer. I'd never even heard of the sinner's prayer. But I had come to a realization that I was guilty before a holy God. And that my only hope was to throw myself on the mercy of Jesus Christ. And my only response was love and, and worship for the grace that I have received. This is a, a promise that is, is for all believers. All believers, really, that's what's a big part of being a Christian means to, to walk in repentance and faith out of, out of love and devotion to God. That's, that's what it means to be a Christian. All of those who are truly born again have dedicated their lives to the Lord. What about you? Is, is, this, is this a vow that you have made? I'm not here advocating a sinner's prayer or speaking against a sinner's prayer. I'm asking if your life is consecrated to God. Does your life, all of it, belong to God? If you're holding back, if you're reserving part of yourself from God, then he is not your Lord. He is not your God. He is not your Savior. Now, this is not works-based salvation. This is the result of somebody who's been saved by grace. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But the, the faith that saves is never alone. Faith proves itself to be true by works done in love and obedience to God. The second vow is the vow that this will be a place of worship. Now, Jacob's going to return to this place and build another altar in Genesis 35. And it's then that the Lord is going to give Jacob a new name, Israel. But if you track through the history of Israel, Bethel did not remain as a place of worship. It did not remain as the house of God. Eventually, it became the epicenter of a cult that rivaled the true worship of God. It became a place of idolatry that would be destroyed during Josiah's efforts of reformation in 2 Kings 23.15. But Jacob is going to fulfill his vow. He is going to worship the Lord in this place. The third vow is to tithe. This is the second time in Genesis that we've seen the principle of tithing. Remember back in Genesis 14, after Abraham defeated, defeated Ketaliomer, and he gave a tithe to Melchizedek, that strange, enigmatic priest king. But this, this pattern of, of giving back to God the first 
10% of what, he, of, of what he has given is repeated throughout the Old Testament and continues, contrary to popular opinion, into the New Testament. When Jesus pronounces woes on the Pharisees, he says this, For you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Yes, God desires mercy but not, sacrif not sacrifice, but he wants the obedience as well. The obedience of, of giving back from what comes from, from the Lord's hand. I mean, he, he knows everything. It owns everything, rather. But tithing is, is a reminder of that fact. True tithing is motivated by love and worship, devotion to God. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. 2 Corinthians 9, 7. So God promises to, God, God's promise to the believer results in worship. It results in dedication in the heart of, of the one who has been truly saved. As Alan Ross explains, those who fully realize God's gracious provision, those whom the, Lord, the word of God has powerfully impressed, will respond with consecration and commitment. Where there's no reverential fear, where there's no commitment or no devotion, there's probably very little apprehension of what the spiritual life is all about. So in Genesis 28, Abraham was running scared. Maybe you are running scared too. But maybe you've begun to realize that you have a much more powerful foe than a homicidal brother. Maybe you're beginning to realize that, that in your sin you've made yourself the enemy of God. God wasn't, Jacob wasn't seeking God, but God was seeking him. God would have been well within his rights to seek out and to destroy Jacob, but instead God met Jacob and in his grace met Jacob's most important needs, not just his material needs, but his spiritual needs. Jacob's understanding of his, of his material needs, his physical needs, led to a deeper understanding, a more profound understanding of his spiritual needs. God promised to be with Jacob. The Moses, through Moses, rather, the Lord had promised Israel and Egypt that he would be with them in Exodus 3.12. I will be with you. The Lord had promised them as they were about to enter Canaan in Deuteronomy 24. The Lord your God, he, is, he goes with you. The Lord promised again in Deuteronomy 31.6. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. This promise becomes the, the benediction of Numbers 6, 24 to 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Fellow Christian, God has sought you as well. He would have been well within his rights to destroy you too. In, but in his grace, he has met your Im most important needs, not just your material needs, not just your physical needs, but your spiritual needs. And he has promised to be with you. 
Now, if you understand a little bit, a little bit about, your, about, about your human nature, your sinful human nature, you realize that, that, that there's a problem with that. How can a holy God be with a sinful people like Jacob, like the children of Israel, and like you, and like me? Please turn with me in your Bible to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verse 51. This is the call of Nathanael. When Jesus calls him, he says to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus is pointing to the stairway, but he doesn't mention the stairway. The angels are ascending and descending on the Son of Man, on the Christ. Jesus is saying, I am the stairway. I am the stairway to heaven. Friends, Jesus is the stairway. The stairway is a type. It's a symbol that points to Christ. This is not allegory. Jesus clearly interprets this dream for us in the New Testament. Later in John 14, 6, Jesus will say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In 1 Timothy 2, 5, Paul will declare, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus is the mediator. Jesus is the stairway between God and man. And now... Jesus, God the Son, is with us. Christ is with us. Matthew 1.23, quoting Isaiah 7.14, says, His name shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. In Matthew 28.20, Jesus promised, I am with you always to the end of the age. And at the time when Jesus returns, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Revelation 21.3. Think about this. Nothing can happen to you that is not for your good and God's glory. Nothing. Romans 8.38 and 39 says, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. In Hebrews 13, 5 and 6, God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, for we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Brothers and sisters, Jesus has promised to be with you. He has promised to take you home. What are you facing in your life? What are you afraid of? What are you concerned about? Jesus Christ has promised to be with you. Fellow Christian, the Lord is with you wherever you go. Fear not, for greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Let's pray. Almighty God, what can we say to such a great salvation? 
except we will take up our cross and follow you by your grace, through the power of your Holy Spirit in us. Lord, we thank you. We praise you for your life that you lived, that perfect, holy life. You obeyed the commandments that we've never obeyed. Lord, you died the death that we deserve to die. But three days later, you rose from the grave, victorious over sin, victorious over death, victorious over Satan, victorious over hell. And now you are interceding for us before the throne of God. And so, Lord, as your people were called by your name, we say thank you. Help us, Lord, to grow in our understanding of these things. Help us, Lord, to grow in our appreciation for these things and our worship of you for these things. We ask this in your holy name. Amen.